welcome to the Corner of Story and Game, a meeting place of world builders and story weavers. I am your host, Gerald Ford, and this week I am sitting down with an amazing game writer and novelist, Drew Karpishan. Drew is a best-selling author, with novels in the Star Wars universe, Forgotten Realms, and Mass Effects. More recently, he has crafted his own original series, the Chaosborn Trilogy, and successfully kickstarted a new novel, The Time Kings of Las Vegas. Drew, thank you for taking the time to talk. Hey, uh, happy to be here. There's lots of podcasts out there that go over the history and all of the details and the titles and all that. This podcast is more about people who want to either break in or just really love the industries or are just curious mm-hmm. about storycraft in general. Mm-hmm. I want to dig more into the actual craft techniques, tools. And right now it's it's pretty surface level, um, but I, I want to pick your brain. You're somebody who's been at this for a while. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> about 20, 20 some years now. So yeah. Share with us a quick little overview of how you got into uh into the world of writing and gaming, the whole journey? Yeah. You know, as far as writing, I've been writing as long as I can remember. Like even in grade school, I was always writing short stories and, you know, fiction. Uh, I've always been involved in that. And then, uh, you know, I was really into video games. Um, you know, I grew up with the uh, Atari and television, so it was kind of a different type of game. You know, it wasn't a lot of story stuff, um, but I was always into video games. And then, uh, you know, once I kind of hit university, I kept up with the writing, but I really fell away from games for quite a while, um, probably about a decade. And uh, I actually didn't get back into them until I was 28 years old. And uh, I had gone back to school to work on my master's in English. I had done a lot of very unsatisfying jobs. And I was kind of trying to figure out how to, you know, how to maybe make a living as a writer or, you know, make make a career out of it. Um, I was working on my master's in English and I had answered an open call for um, uh, novels, new novels for Wizards of the Coast, which is the company that makes Dungeons and Dragons. I've I've been a big gamer of, you know, D&D and that my whole life. Again, kind of fell away from it after, after, you know, the early college years. Um, But I submitted some stuff, got accepted. uh, So that kind of got my foot in the door of the writing side. And at the same time, a company called Bioware, which is founded in Edmonton, which is where I, you know, was going to school, where I, basically grew up, um, was working on a game called Baldur's Gate 2, which was a sequel to Baldur's Gate, which was, of course, a massive game. Yeah. Uh, and they were looking for writers. Um, so I saw this little ad in the English Department newsletter. And I, at the time, thought, oh, okay, this will be, you know, a little small little contract work. I'll do something, some little local game company. I started looking into it, and I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is legit. And I hadn't, again, I'd gone away from games. I hadn't heard of Baldur's Gate. I started you know, looking into it, I was like, wow, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, went to the interview and, you know, Baldur's Gate is set in the Forgotten Realms of the Wizards of the Coast Dungeons and Dragons franchise. That also happened to be the novel I was working on. So everything kind of meshed together. And uh, I, you know, had an interview. They liked my stuff. Uh, it kind of seemed to go well. They gave me an offer and I dropped out of school, never finished my master's because I was like, I have a job. I don't need this degree. I'm done. So <laughs> That was sort of my foot in the door. So it was sort of just a, a really, for me, coincidental right place, right time. Right. But it's also one of those crazy, like, you know, overnight success where <laughs> I went from, you know, not having any books to having, you know, five books published in five years. But it took me 28 years before I was published a book. Right. right. Um, which is 
pretty common from the book and writing side. Most people put 10 plus years of, of hard work in before their big break. Um, you know, I think Stephen King was about that age. He was late 20s when he finally broke into the scene. Um, yeah. You know, there's all sorts of stories like that. Yeah, that seems like a common thread when it comes to people breaking into creative industries in general is that it's that overnight success. And then you look into it and there's 10, 15 years of hard work before the overnight success. Like even Ed Sharon, he put in a mm. lot of work before that sudden Jamie Foxx found him and he overnight success. But yeah, you know, same deal. Yeah, I mean, it really is that. I, I hate to say it because people won't misunderstand it, but the 10,000 hour rule mm-hmm. um, that Malcolm Gladwell often talks about, which is. People misunderstand it. They think they think it means if you do something with 10,000 hours, you'll become an expert. That's not what it means. It means on average, anyone who is near the top of their field has put in 10,000 hours of effort. Exactly. Now, it doesn't mean you'll automatically become great at something. You still got to have some natural talent, but talent needs to be you know, honed. It needs to be perfected. Like you said earlier, it's about the craft of writing and you know, writing, it, it seems to take a good solid decade before you really kind of find your voice and find your your own sort of way to express yourself in a way that other people want to hear that they're willing to, you know, get you to actually do it professionally. Now that's obviously not true for everyone, but it does seem to be way more common than you would think. Mm -hmm. It's not something you break into young. (laughs) I remember a writing coach in my early twenties told me that you would throw away a million words before you started actually finding your voice and and getting paid. And at the time that terrified me looking back now, it's (laughs) yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's funny because a lot of writers will say, you know, I look back at stuff I worked on, you know, years ago and I'm embarrassed by it. And I'm actually, I'm the opposite. I look at it and I go, actually, it was better than I remember. <laughs> there was some good stuff in there. Right but on. even that, you still need to, you know, sort of build up this uh, catalog of skills and, and you know, abilities and, and take your talent and find a way to use it. Mm-hmm. For so, sure. Yeah, it just takes a long time. Luckily for me, it, it happened at the same time with my writing career in books as it did in video games. Again, just sort of being at the right place at the right time, you know, with the right company. Um, Bioware was a, you know, a really successful company uh, at the time. And they went on to really big, great things. Uh, the two founders, yeah. um, Ray Mazika and Greg Zeschuk, really, you know, created something really meaningful and, and really amazing yeah, in Edmonton, which is, you know, not really people would think of as a hotbed of video game creativity. But we had some amazing, talented people there. Mm-hmm. Still um, do. Still do. Yeah. Um, anybody growing up in Alberta as a gamer and a writer, when Bioware took off, I mean, it made all of us think, wow, maybe we can do this too. Like as an Albertan, that was a big point of pride amongst the nerd culture. Yeah. Um, but looking back at the journey and maybe not, was there a pivotal moment? Was the crossing, crossing the threshold moment? Was there a moment where things could have went another way, but, but this is the way they went? I mean, you can always look at things in life and say, like, what is the thing, you know, the weird series of events, this butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for me, for example, the reason I had gone back to school was I was working in a bank. You know, I was a loan officer. I was doing mutual funds, mortgages, all sorts of stuff. I had a reasonable career. Right. And I was in a car accident. That wasn't my fault. Um, but I got a pretty good settlement. And I was like, oh, now I can afford to go to school, get my master's. So it was sort of this weird coincidence, but I honestly believe if that hadn't happened, there would have been something else. Right. Um, because I was still always kind of looking for ways to do the writing. Um, I, I did answer that novel, that, that call for 
new writers that Wizards of the Coast was looking for. You know, I was always looking for things like that. I was writing short stories. I had them sort of, uh, I had several of them that had been published in sort of smaller magazines, um, things like that. But I was putting my writing out there. I was keeping at it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there was a specific, I mean, I can point to the, you know, my big break, but if it hadn't happened like that, I, I believe if you just keep looking, yeah. there are multiple opportunities. You don't get one chance to, to do it. And it, it, as we said, it doesn't really happen overnight. Mm-hmm. It seems like it from the outside, but on the inside, you're like, yeah, I, I paid my dues. I, you know, little incremental bits here and there got better and better and starts you down the path. I love that, that mindset of, if I'm constantly looking, if that's what I'm going to try and work towards, eventually I'm going to see the door. I'm going to see a crack and I'm going to go through it. If you're not looking, you're not going to see the door. You're not going to see the crack. So, yeah. And I mean, I had a lot of different writing things. I did some uh, sports uh, like journalism. Uh, I was covering uh, the, the, they were called the Edmonton uh, drillers, the indoor soccer team. Yep. Uh, I did some stuff for them. I, uh, I wrote some safety manuals for the Alberta government. Like I was just doing all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, seeing what would click, what would happen. Uh, I had submitted a couple little um, humorous stories. ESPN had a contest where they would do little humorous stories. So I did like a humorous Shaquille O'Neal versus uh, Wilt Chamberlain. If they were both in their prime, who would have won in a one-on-one game? Oh, fun. Um, there was a, a, so that got published on the ESPN website. Right on. Like you say, those opportunities are there. Uh, you just got to dig for them and, and realize that a lot of them are going to just turn into just sort of a funny little anecdote that doesn't go anywhere, but yeah, you know, keep keep buying lottery tickets and eventually you'll win. Well, that's a bad example. Don't buy lottery no, tickets. People no. are terrible. Pay Don't your do dues. That. Pay your dues. Work yeah. on your craft. Yeah, that's a better way to put it. Let's do that. <laughs> Did you ever submit anything to OnSpec? Just out of curiosity. I submitted many times there and just never. Yeah. I mean, short stories are. On the one hand, there's a lot of markets for them. But on the other hand, a lot of people are doing them. Right. Um, and for me personally, I actually find short stories very difficult because there's such a constrained mm-hmm. um, medium. Like I, I really prefer novels. I think a novels, obviously it takes longer to write, but it's an easier process, but you know, short stories, I, I love short stories, but they're just, they're very difficult to do well because you have to be so efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, there can be no meat, no fat. You can't explore the way you can with a novel. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just my particular writing style, but I, I send a, have more success with novels, but yeah, it's just a, a quirk of the, the medium. Yeah. The, the brevity requires you to boil things down to an essence that you, that you can't, uh, you, well, you can, but yeah. you don't typically achieve with a novel. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And, and brevity's never been my strong suit. <laughs> well, you're fantastic at pacing. You, t- you uh, tell a story that moves like a train. Chug, chug, chug. I, I do try to keep the pacing going. Um, and, I'll be honest, for me, I am a very visual writer in that to me, I see the scenes in my head. Right. You know, I imagine it. I imagine that I'm writing a, you know, writing a visual description of almost like a film (laughs) with the added advantage of diving into characters, thoughts and motivations in a way that you can't in film. Um, So I think that helps me a lot with my action scenes and the choreography of, you know, I have a lot of action scenes in my work. Yeah. Um, And I think that really helps with that. It comes through for sure. Have you ever considered writing a screenplay? Is that something that's ever come across your? I mean, I would love to do it. And I've, you know, I've, I've tried a few things. I've, I've done a few small, uh, you know, projects that never kind of went anywhere. I've done some, a bit of a screenplay stuff for some animated stuff that never got picked up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I worked with uh, a couple other people 
I'm probably not allowed to say, so I, you know, there's NDAs and stuff. So, but people who've been in, you know, some fairly successful TV in that we, you know, kicked around some projects, but it's a very strange industry. TV and film is, uh, it's just, it's hard to break into. And uh, it's a lot of, it seems to be, it's not politics because that's not what it is. It's just, there's sort of a, something about it that, that there's a lot more to it than just the, the, the work itself, right? It's selling the work selling yourself, yeah. getting people to buy into that. And and that's not my strength. I'm kind of like, hire me, I'll do good work, get right. the hell out of my way, <laughs> right? And uh, I really noticed that when we were shopping the script for Mass Effect around to movie studios, back when the, the you know, after the first game had come out and it had been successful, everybody wanted to talk to us about possible movies. Right. And we would go to these studios and they would say, well, we, we've got someone to write a, a spec script for a possible movie based on Mass Effect. And, you know, I'd always be like, OK, I don't know why you didn't ask me to do it, but let's look. And it would be like, OK, so this is like lethal weapon in space. There's like a human cop and a Turian and they hate each other. And, you know, they learn to be friends and it's it's basically lethal weapon. And I'm like, why isn't it Mass Effect? Yeah. I didn't do our story. But they're like, no, we just want to take the name and not really do anything that has anything to do with it. Oh, Lord. It was it was a bizarre experience. Um, and, you know, we shopped around quite a bit. I think someone eventually did buy some kind of rights package, but it never amounted to anything and it never went anywhere. Um, oh. Yeah, it was just a, a very strange experience. And uh, I would love it if someone, you know, came and dropped a, a pile of money on my desk and said, write the screenplay and I would jump at it. But all the stuff that goes along with writing screenplays, I'm just not not good at. So I'm sticking with my books and my games. Um, well, speaking of games, mm. uh, just to put a capstone on the end of the whole history piece, was there a game that jumped out at you when you were starting to come back to games where the writing, like, was there a first game where the writing jumped out at you and grabbed your attention? So I, I thought about this a little bit. And my, my first instinct was to say not really because because the way I started to approach games was very analytical of, what are they doing? Uh, what's their craft, right? What are they doing well? What are they doing wrong? How do I take what they're doing well and incorporate it in my stuff? How would I fix what they're doing? And I would deconstruct them and I wouldn't enjoy them as entertainment, right? Right. So my first instinct was to say no, but then I thought about it. There was one game way back when I first started that uh, I, I really enjoyed the writing um, and it was a game called Fallout. Hmm. Actually, I think it was Fallout 2, to be fair, but that's series. And yep. I don't know if people are familiar with it, um, but basically you are, you know, it's post-nuclear war and you are in a bomb shelter uh, and you, you know, have to go out into the outside world. And because something, the water uh, purifier breaks, I believe is what it is. And, uh, you know, they were just really clever, humorous, but also pretty dark <laughs> and yep. grim. Um, so, if you, you know, the story for that was brilliant. Um, you know, it was a turn-based gameplay. It was a... Uh, Definitely not what I would consider a modern game. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the action and stuff is not where a lot of people think it is. It was, of course, not cinematic in most of the conversations were just pure text. Right. But, uh, but it's just a, a really, that game it really impressed me with what they did. And, and that was the one I think for me, uh, partly because it was the time I was just getting back into games. Right. And partly because it's just they did such a good job. Um, you know, there's been a lot of games that are that told really good stories. Of course, you know, Last of Us uh, mm -hmm. is one a lot of people go to. Um, Bioshock was one at the time. 
I like to think our games, yeah. uh, Nice Old Republic, Mass Effect, Dragon Age, things I've helped. I didn't really work on Dragon Age. I'll, I don't want to take credit for something I didn't do. But the games Bioware was putting out, I think we're leaders in the industry. For sure. And then, of course, you know, now you see games like Witcher, which I think we really paved the way for. Mm-hmm. Um, so where's my Netflix series? No, just <laughs> Hopefully um, it's coming. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not allowed to say. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's focus on craft for a second or for a few sure. minutes. What's something you wish you had known before you started? Here's the thing everyone says, and, and I still know it, but I don't know it, which is the, the hardest part of writing is just, just sitting down and starting, right? Like there's a million excuses, a million distractions. You know, you, you really need to build good habits. And weirdly, as sort of prolific as I feel like I've been, I also feel like I'm terribly motivated as far as writing. Um, I'm very deadline driven. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of go until the last possible minute and then I go into panic mode for two months, churn something out. I often think if I had better habits, it would be huge because it probably takes me somewhere around 200 hours roughly to do a book from like concept to finish. Oh, wow. 200 hours of work. Now you can't do that in, you can't do eight hours a day. Like two, two to three hours a day is about all I can handle. But if I did two hours a day, mm-hmm. you know, four, four, three, three days a week, you know, it's like, okay, that's book and a half a year, you know, of three books every two years. And I am nowhere near that productive. Hmm. And that, I mean, that's it. That's like, you know, every other day spend two hours writing and I would have triple the amount of books I have. <laughs> you know, you look at someone like uh, Brandon Sanderson. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, very prolific fantasy writer, author. And that's kind of what he does. He sits down and he's like, I'm going to spend, you know, he says eight hours. I bet it's not eight. I bet it's five. But he's like, I'm going to spend five hours in front of my computer writing mm-hmm. every like nine to five. Like I do it five days a week, Monday to Friday. I do that. And he puts out book after book after book. And, you know, I, I, I enjoy his writing. I, I feel it's similar to mine. It's you know, very action packed and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, I can see that, you know, he's obviously got a huge audience as well, but his work ethic is just amazing to me. Uh, same with someone like Stephen King. Like he's like, I sit down and I write mm-hmm. the other end of the spectrum is you know, I don't want to throw stones, but someone like George Martin, you know, who, and I, I get where he's coming from. It's hard mm-hmm. to sit down and write. There's yeah. a lot of reasons not to. Um, and I think, you know, when you have the expectations that he has on him yeah, and the so money hard. that he has, so he doesn't have the motivation. I get that. But for me, the big thing is I wish I had developed better habits because it's, it's really hard to develop them later on. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's Asimov who, put out hundreds of books yeah i mean there's people who just yeah write like crazy and then there's the rest of us mere mortals well that's a excellent piece of advice establish the habits Mm -hmm. here's a tough one okay Uh, what would you say was your biggest failure as a writer and what did you learn from that so it's not a tough question to answer i mean it 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 I blew it, but I actually have two, oh, if you don't mind oh, me. No, please. The first one was the Throne of Ball novelization. Um, so I don't know. I actually talk about this a little bit on the, the book section of my website. There were novels based on the Baldur's Gate games. The first two were not written by me. Um, and I'm going to flat out say it, they're awful. They're awful. The person <laughs> who wrote them didn't really understand the games. He didn't like the games. 
He was a very high up editor at uh, Wizards of the Coast, which controlled the publishing rights. He was an edit, a very high up editor who decided to write these books. He wasn't a writer. I think he was just so high in the company. Nobody could tell him they were terrible. Um, but then I got the chance to write the third, the final book in that series. Um, and I, I did two things wrong. First of all, I tried to tell the story that we told in the game and it didn't translate very well. Um, I, I wish I'd done a better job of, I was afraid of leaving anything out. So I left everything in, um, you know, games have a lot of repetition in them. Um, you know, there was five enemies you had to fight. You fought each of the five enemies, eventually defeated them all. And then you fought the big boss. And I wrote all of them into the book. Did not need to do that. Um, needed to focus on sort of the core struggle a little bit more. Uh, and the other thing was because um, there's such a backlash to the first two books, I tried to, I don't know if deconstruct is the right word, but I did a lot of things in my book to try and undo what he had done, um, you know, killing off certain characters or changing characters. And it just made things worse. Um, you know, I, I think the, the real lesson from that for me was just don't, don't try to write a video game adaptation of a Bioware style role-playing game. Mm. There's just too many characters, too much going on. Um, and that's why, for example, for the Revan novel, I did not write the story of Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, even though I was the lead writer on the video game and they wanted to do a Revan novel, and I said, it, it can't be the story of the game. It has to be something different. Now, that novel, I think it's a good novel. I think there's a lot of good things in it. A lot of people were upset by it because it, uh, you know, it maybe didn't capture the game characters in the way they interpreted them, especially in a game where you can make your own character. Right. And the novel is also a bridge between the story of Revan that was in our video game and in a later game. Uh, so it 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 does have an ending, but it's kind of an ending that is like a dot 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 to be continued. Mm -hmm. um, which I, I some people were frustrated by that. Um, a lot of people liked it though. I, I did try to make it feel satisfying in its own way. Um, but because of that lesson, I realized I'm just not going to do, do a, a video game adaptation of our style of, of books. Right. You either have to leave out so many things that fans love that they will resent you, or you will have a book that is just unwieldy and, and doesn't read very well. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my first <laughs> bad thing. The second one was with my own uh, original fantasy series, um, Children of Fire. All right. Uh, the first book of my Chaos Born trilogy. And... It's a, uh, you know, um, going back to a George Martin or Lord of the Rings, you know, sprawling epic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I had read, you know, the first several books of the Game of Thrones series, as, as most people had. And I didn't look at them close enough. In my mind, I was like, yeah, this is what fantasy does. It jumps around from character to character and takes you to all the corners of the world. But if you really read that book carefully, what George Martin does and what successful authors do they do that very carefully and slowly. They start you in one place, they keep you grounded and they slowly build it out and add bits and pieces. And by the time you get to the middle of the book, you can be jumping all over, but you know these things. I went way too hard and way too fast. I had four sort of main characters and I kept jumping back and forth between their stories to keep them chronologically matched up. Mm -hmm. So you would be sort of in one corner of the world jump to another corner, jump to another corner, jump to another corner. By the middle of the book, everything came together. And readers who could get through that first part and keep it straight, I think really enjoyed the series. Yeah. 
but it really did put a lot of readers off. I also went a little too deep in some of the characters um, I, because I there was something interesting I wanted to say about one character at say age eight. I felt like I'd have an age eight chapter for every character, oh, okay. so that didn't work well either with four characters. So there's really sixteen chapters of building these characters up before their stories start to come together. If I could do it again, I would probably cut it to about 10 chapters Mm -hmm. and I would start with one character and take you through to where the second character shows up and then it would backtrack and then I would take you through that second character. So it's really just about understanding how much information your audience can process because it's very easy to overwhelm readers Mm -hmm. and you can get away with that if your stuff's really, really good, but it just puts up a barrier. It just makes it harder for your audience. Um, and I really try not to do that anymore. I really wish I could have a, a do-over on that book because I feel like it, it did put a lot of people off. And, and almost all the, you know, there's a lot of people who really liked it, but the people who didn't, very common theme was took too long to get going. It was disorienting. It was jumping all over the place. And I just, I really would like a do-over on that. And it, it really taught me a lesson about keeping things coming at a pace readers can absorb. Right. Yeah. Well, if you did get that do-over, would, would you still use four POV characters? I, I think it can work uh, if, you know, so for example, um, uh, the Rule of Two Darth Bane book, mm-hmm. right, has, uh, has three primary point of view characters. There's Bane, there's Xana, his apprentice, and then there's the Jedi that's hunting them. But because I was smarter about it and I kept things more focused on it and I didn't try to balance them, I didn't feel like they all had to have equal numbers of chapters because of that, I think it worked quite well. I think that book mm-hmm. really comes across well. Um, you know, uh, I, I like having multiple points of view, but I think you have to realize that, you know, why are you switching points of view uh, as a writer? Why are you doing it? Are you doing it to teach you something new mm-hmm. or are you doing it just because you feel like you should, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do really like this idea of seeing things from different perspectives. But again, it's you have to be careful of disorienting the reader. You know, you have to... Be careful about overwhelming them with just too much keeping who is who straight. Um, But I I think there's a lot of value. It's very rare that I write a book that doesn't have at least two or three main points of view. But how you get there and, and, you know, getting there carefully uh, is a big part of that. And do you think, just out of curiosity, do you think there's value in having one of them as your primary protagonist and others are just additional points of view? Or do you try and split co-protagonists? Well, I mean, when I tried to split it and I split it fairly evenly, it, I, it didn't work very well. So maybe there's a lesson there. Right. Um, but I, I think I think I really think there's a lot of value in having the protagonist and antagonist both giving their point of view. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I don't think uh, Mass Effect, uh, the novels would work as well if you didn't see, for example, Saren's perspective or something like that. Um, I think for me, that's a big part of it is is you do want characters who have different points of view to have different high level goals and motivations. Like they're, they're coming at this from different sides. So, you know, if they're kind of all on the same team for want of a better word, mm-hmm. uh, maybe different points of view isn't a great way to go. You know, you're kind of getting the same beats right. with just a different character covering them up. So it's really hard to, just to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't inherently dislike multiple points of view. Probably my most successful uh, series is the Darth Bane one. Now, some of that's because of the Star Wars name, obviously. But it is also the first book, especially, is very focused 
on that specific character, right? Mm -hmm. On Darth Bane and his perspective. Um, so maybe there is something to that. But then, as I said, as I go farther in the series, I, I open that up. So I, I think it's a lot of it is just pacing, um, you know, introducing your characters, getting them comfortable with one point of view yeah. so that when you switch, they know, you know, they understand that, that this is done for a reason and they should be able to tell that it's a different character by the way it's written without me having to say like, this is so-and-so's point of view. They should know a character well enough to realize, oh, this is clearly not the same character. Yeah. And if they don't know the character well enough to, to know that without me telling them that it's a different character, that might be the issue. That makes sense. Writing in established IP worlds like Star Wars and Forgotten Realms like you have, what are some of the unique challenges that you face when writing in those worlds? So, I mean, one of the huge challenges, of course, is... Uh, is just making sure everything fits. So there's two sides to that. One is the the tone, the style, the feel of the novel. You know, what is the level of sex? What is the level of violence? What is the level of humor? What is the level of, you know, swearing? What, you know, what, uh, how does technology work in this world? What, right. what things are established and what things are new? You know, what can you get away with and what can't you? Uh, that's, that's a real, you know, just understanding the IP, understanding what works in there. That's, um, that's obviously a huge part of, of understanding that. But then there's also the making sure you respect the narrative canon, you know, whatever's established. So, you know, if you're doing a Star Wars novel, you can't kill off Han Solo before he's killed off in the movie, right? Like, right. You have to understand that people want to, for the most part, they want to have a consistent story, uh, a consistent universe. Mm -hmm. So if a character's alive at a certain point in the timeline and you're writing something before that, you better not kill that character off. Right. Now, Star Wars gets incredibly messy when it comes to that because they kind of did a reboot when Disney stepped in and they disavowed, I guess, uh, I wouldn't say disavowed, that's too harsh a word. They have uh, stepped away from some of the lore that had been established because they wanted to do the movies with fresh takes and not be beholden to what had been written before. Right. And the people who were doing the movies wanted to tell their own versions of stories. Um, so there became this split. So a lot of the stuff became what they call legends, which is no longer considered official. There's a, a large number of Star Wars books now, you know, where Luke marries a character named Mara Jade and they have kids and, yeah. you know, all sorts of stuff that, that never happened in the movie timelines. For me, I was lucky because my Star Wars stuff was Old Republic. Uh, it always it was thousands of years before the movie, mm -hmm. and there was at the time nobody else writing that. I was the first one in there, which was a real huge advantage to me because as long as I didn't do anything like say you know wipe out the planet where Yoda's species is from, right. uh, you know as long as I didn't do anything ridiculous, I could kind of kind of had a free reign. They kind of let me do anything I wanted in the in the stories, which I don't think a lot of other authors got that freedom. Uh, with Mass Effect, because I was the lead writer on the games. And the writer of the first three novels, I was, again, able to work things in together. I knew I didn't want to tell the same story in the novels as the games, but I wanted them to sort of fit together. But because I was so familiar with the story on both sides, I was able to do that. And I had, again, pretty much unlimited freedom because there was nobody else writing any of this stuff. I didn't have to match anyone else's work but my own work. So there, there is a, a real concern about that. But I've been lucky in that I've been able to sort of avoid it for the most part. Um, to the extent that some other authors have to deal with it. That sounds amazing, being the, the god of the Mass Effects universe for a little while, just <laughs> being able to create. Oh, well, at least you weren't the writer that killed off Chewbacca, right? 
Yeah. Well, it's funny because that was um, R.A. Salvatore. Yeah. So, I mean, he was an incredibly successful author. Yes, he is. And then, you know, took a lot of backlash for that. And I'm pretty sure they wanted him to kill a main character. Like, I don't think he he threw that out there. I have a feeling they asked for it. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that can happen in these is, you know, you, you kind of are beholden to bigger issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they control all the rights to those books. They can decide who writes them. You know, if they, if they wanted to, they could get another Darth Bane book written by a completely different author. Yeah. Um, I hope they wouldn't, but I have no recourse if they decide to do that. That's part of the deal of working in these shared universes. You have to understand it's not your universe. They're allowing you to participate in it right. under their terms. And, and that's important to you remember. Know, they pay you fairly well for it. And, uh, and that's the deal you accept. And, and I'm, I understand that I'm a professional. I'm good with that. Yeah. There is business involved in writing. It's not just, yes. Um, what is the best compliment you've ever received about your writing? Oh, wow. <laughs> Jeez. I don't know if it's a specific compliment, but I, I've had a few people, whenever someone tells me how, like there was a difficult time in their life mm. and one of my books helped them through it. Right. Not necessarily by teaching them a lesson, just it was an escape. It was something they could do. You know, uh, uh, there's some fans I know that I've had some correspondence with and um, they had some very serious health problems uh, in their, the, it was a husband and wife and uh, he had some really serious health problems. He was in the hospital for a long time and, you know, she would go in there and read books to him. Oh, wow. Um, you know, it, and they say, you know, it was, it really helped us. It, it really help ease our emotional burden. You know, that's all I want as a writer. I just want someone to enjoy my work. I want them to find it a way to escape from the stress of life. The, you know, I want it to just be something that is a little happier than when they started. Now, happier is maybe not the right term because sometimes books can be tragic and that's okay. Yeah. Right. But it's an escape from whatever reality you, you just need to break from, because we all need to break from things at some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, whenever I hear that, um, you know, I'll get a lot of uh, emails from uh, people who've, you know, served overseas, uh, you know, in Iraq or wherever. And they say during long, boring nights, or, you know, they, they read the book and I'm like, you know, it's just that that's a difficult thing to deal with. And, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that I was able to help them with that, I just, that's probably the, the best thing when I hear that from people. Um, that just really makes me happy as a writer. It makes me feel like I'm, you know, it, it I don't want to get too high on the horse, you know, uh, but art does have a lot of noble um, potential. And to me, that feels like that, that I'm fulfilling that potential, even though I'm, you know, writing about space cowboys and lasers and whatever. It's like, you know what, if somebody appreciates it and it makes their life better in some small way, mm-hmm. um, you know, I take real pride in having, Helped contribute to that. Hell yeah. That's why you do it. Yeah. And the money. The money's good too. <laughs> and the money. You gotta pay the you gotta pay the bills one way or another. If you're paying the bills, pay the bills and making people's lives better. Yeah. Let's take a shift and talk about creative living. As artists, we challenge we face challenges that are are unique. Um one of which is finding balance, because we're often driven to create and pursue and and often that can get in the way of family life or hobbies or work-life balance. How do you balance the drive of being a creative with everything else in life? You know, and I think this is common for a lot of 
creative people. Uh, if you don't have those really good work habits mm-hmm. that I talked about earlier, like someone like a Brandon Sanderson, where you have set times and you write and you do that, I think you tend to go in in bursts and troughs, right? Like you have really productive for two months. You're just I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go hard. There's an idea that I particularly like. I'm gonna jump on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it's a deadline that's causing this, but you you go really hard. And then there'll be times where you don't do anything, right? You're so unproductive. Um, and I, I think, you know, for me, I've just learned to accept that. Like it just, that's just the way it goes, right? Yeah. Um, I definitely was more driven when I was younger. Uh, I had more uh, more time for writing and less time for other things in life. Um, now I have more time for other things in life and less time for writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still try to make time for writing, but it's hard. You can get comfortable and, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to, uh, for me, it's easy to go the opposite direction where I'm not doing enough writing. I'm not throwing myself into the creativity enough. Um, you know, when I do, I tend to go pretty hard. Um, I I tend to, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it a lot. Uh, when I'm in the middle of writing a, a book or a story, I, I don't sleep very well because when I go to bed, my head's just turning over the ideas, turning over the ideas, turning over the ideas. Yeah. I don't get a lot of sleep. I, I just, I find that I'm in a constant state of thinking about, I should be writing. When am I going to write? I can't enjoy the hobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to find that balance. And again, I think good habits yeah. take that stress away because you know, oh, at nine o'clock, I'm going to write for two hours. I don't have to think about it at six o'clock because I know at nine o'clock, I'm going to do it. Right. If you don't have those good habits, it's tough. And uh, I haven't really found a good answer. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons, uh, like I said, I've, I haven't done nearly as many books. I've got a lot of ideas that are just at the outline stage. And I'm like, I just really got to sit down and do these. And I, you know, then I'll be like, oh, but oh, Futurama's on. I, I've only seen this episode <laughs> seven times. I'll just watch it. It's a good one. So, yeah. Would, would it be safe to say that you approach approach work-life balance from a, a macro view? You know, look at the last six, 12 months and say, okay, there was balance. I'm sure there may have been two months of hard work and two months of yeah. doing nothing. But in the macro view, it was balanced. I guess so. I mean, I think that the thing you have to really be careful of is it's very easy to beat yourself up about not being productive, mm-hmm. you know, because you all, we all hear the same stories, like, you know, get good habits, be productive, you know, set your schedules. Um, and really it's okay to realize maybe you do need to, to work on that, but it's also, I think a big part of, of coming to terms with your creativity is just uh, accepting that sometimes you're not creative and that's okay. And it'll come back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've luckily never had a case of writer's block. I've never, I've never had a thing where I've struggled to come up with an idea or come up with something. For me, it's always distractions. It's always something keeping me from sitting down and doing it. I mean, you could say that's a form of writer's block, but I always know what I want to do next. I just procrastinate. I don't do it. I find some reason to not do it. And a lot of that's because writing is just hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. You don't get... It's, it, you don't get the kind of feedback, say if you're a musician or a painter, you can kind of hear a riff and be like, oh, that's good, that's good, yeah, like yeah. that. You know, you can write a chapter and be like, that's great, I love that. But a book is sort of more of a whole thing that until it's done and cleaned up and put out there, yeah. it's not really a thing. And even then, people can't, 
There's no interactive. There's no audience. You can't, you know, you can say to someone, hey, read this, but you can't sit there and watch them read it. Don't. That's just a recipe for disaster. <laughs> so it's sort of an isolated experience. And it's it's something that, that I think there's a reason a lot of writers are depressed is because it can be isolating what we do. And often you do a lot of work with no reward because the thing doesn't end up coming together the way you want it. Uh, you know, you have to tear it down and start over or you have to move on to something else or you, you've, you're happy with it, but it, it doesn't get published. The publisher won't buy it. And you're like, well, what do I do with it now? Like yeah. uh, it's just a, a very difficult thing to deal with. So I don't, I don't think I answered your question. I started down a tangent there and just wandered off. I think it answered all the questions. It definitely is, especially novelists, because I do some script, like some some corporate script. I, I do a lot of marketing, writing, copywriting, but I do a lot of script writing for corporate videos. And you're a you're working with a team, so you're always bouncing mm. ideas off everybody else in the team. And B, you can see the finished product within a month, like mm. three weeks, two weeks, if you push yourself. Whereas a novel, like you say, you could be working on it forever and then have to tear it down, build it back up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a very lonely and difficult task. Um, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the games is more like, like what you're saying in, uh, you know, even though the production schedule on games is often, you know, now three to five years before yeah. it releases because you're part of a team, at least the way I've worked on games is I'm, I'm part of the team. You know, you're constantly getting feedback and iteration and, people are saying what's good and what's not good. And you, you get a lot of, there's a lot of fulfilling positive moments. Somebody's like, Oh, that's great. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, what a good idea. Oh, we have a problem. Oh, we solved it. You know, let's celebrate. So, you know, the collaborative nature of games is something I really like. The trade-off is of course you give up some creative control, right? right? <laughs> that's the disadvantage of working with a team, but not necessarily one's better than the other, but there is something to that collaborative element working with a team that is, a little easier to do for a long term for mm-hmm. me than like writing a novel, just yeah. sitting down and doing it by yourself with nobody else involved. I I hear you. That makes sense. Um, apart from gaming and reading, where do you find uh, inspiration to feed the creative fires to give you fuel for what you're making? So. It's interesting. I mean, this isn't what you asked because I, I, this is your question's a, a deeper version of this. But, you know, when people say, where do you get your ideas? I'm always just like, I, I don't know. Like, I literally don't. They just come to me. Mm-hmm. You know, often they're inspired by other things you're seeing, watching, right? Um, right. Sometimes songs will give me an idea. I'll watch a TV show or, or uh, see a film and be like, oh, I thought they were going to do this and they didn't. I wonder why they didn't do that. Maybe I should do that. Oh, that'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. And it, when you say that, it makes it sound very derivative, but I don't think that's what it is. I think all creativity is kind of, you know, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Everything you do is sort of tied in with everything else in that creative realm, um, whether it's music or books or film or whatever, right? Um, and you're constantly using the the archetypes and the tropes and, you know, playing against them and playing with them and yeah. using shorthand stuff to, to help you get through some of the, the stuff that otherwise would be just a chore to figure out. So for me, like I say, ideas, I've just, I've got so many ideas and I don't really know where they come from. I've got a list, a folder of book and story ideas. That's going to outlive me for sure. And I keep adding to it. So it's just, you know, which ones are worth taking and developing 
yeah. uh, putting into, you know, putting the time and effort in to make them into something complete. But for the most part, you know, I, I don't consciously find inspiration in a lot of places, but just stuff I watch, stuff I listen to, cool. stuff I, cool. you know, I, I like watching and reading science fiction and fantasy, and that's pretty much what I write. Yeah. Uh, horror, too, to some degree, a little bit of horror. You know, I, I don't, I do still watch, like, you know, drama, historical stuff, anything, you know, maybe not in the fantastic realm, mm-hmm. but that typically isn't triggering ideas for me. Uh, when I watch fantasy and things like that, then ideas kind of get triggered. So, yeah, I don't really know if there's a good way to answer that. But uh, uh, well, let me let me let me rephrase the question, I suppose, because okay. there are two ways I intentionally worded the question that because there's two different kind of um, avenues you can take it. One is what are the things that say you're having a crappy day and you don't feel like putting words to page? that if you do those things, suddenly you start feeling that feeling again. For me, for example, when I'm completely out of ideas, I'll go, I'll head up to Edmonton and I'll go live theater. For me, we'll get the fires burning again. Whether I'm working on a photography project or a videography project, that's one way to look at it. The other way is, and I can't remember who wrote it, there, there's a theory that all creative output comes from us synergizing and taking in all of these different experiences and art forms and subconsciously breaking them down into pieces, putting them together in new ways. So you're, you're getting the raw material to create your art from the world Mm -hmm. around you. So are there certain things that you draw in? That's the two different ways to view it. I'm definitely in that second camp. Like, you know, all the things I'm consuming, you know, visually music, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I am, I'm, I'm, you know, taking bits and pieces. I'm, I'm, putting them in the back of my mind, saving yeah. them so that I can play with them later and, and build them you know, into something different. Um, that's definitely for me. I, I don't find, you know, I have things I like to do um, as relaxation and that, but it, it doesn't ever, it's very, you know, I love to golf, for example, golf, I love golf. Cool. But when I'm golfing, I'm golfing. I don't come off a golf course and go, I have an idea now. I, I solved you. that issue that was bugging me about this creative thing I was doing. Mm-hmm. That is not how I work. Um, I need to be focusing on the creative thing to solve problems. And the way I get those solutions is by ingesting all these other, you mm-hmm. know, all this other media and, you know, seeing how they did stuff and what was cool and what wasn't cool. So I'm definitely in that second camp. Um, right on. Well, and that's, yeah. that's what, it, this is the stuff I want to learn is this is what I'm trying to pull out of people is, yeah. is your processes. How do you do it? What works for you? So that's, that is, that is what I'm looking for. Okay. So this is the quick fire round. Uh, I like to just ask a series of quick questions. Don't give it too much thought. Don't go too far down <laughs> the rabbit hole unless you want to. But, um, the whole idea here is just top of mind stuff. That's so hard for me, but I'm going to try. <laughs> All right. Well, what are you playing these days? Uh, for video games or sure. any of the above video board or tabletop role oh, okay. play. Well, you know, honestly, uh, I, I play a few mobile games that are just mind nice. syncs for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do a lot of wordle. I do a lot of, uh, a game called threes, um, just sort of little mindless games that I can just do, uh, words with friends, nice. a lot of word games. Uh, I don't really do much else unless I'm researching it to, to deconstruct it and take stuff from it right. to use in my own gaming. Gotcha. What's your favorite book or game quote? Oh, good Lord. Uh, 
I think, honestly, uh, and I, I probably can't remember it right, but the opening line of Stephen King's The Gunslinger, I think it says, the man in black fled into the desert and the gunslinger followed. Yeah. And I that first book to me is brilliant. I love it. The series kind of went off the rails toward the end. It got a little bloated in that. But that first book is such, just for me, it was such an amazing, powerful thing. And that, I, I believe that's the opening quote. And I just love that quote. Yeah, that's a good one. If you could only write in one genre for the rest of your life, which one would it be? I think probably fantasy. Science fiction, horror, fantasy are the ones I tend to generally write in. Mm -hmm. Science fiction got a lot more research to make sure it actually works. Fantasy right. are just like wizard. Wizard did it. Magic done. So it's it's easier. <laughs> you should. It would be neat to see a Drew Carpishian Call of Cthulhu book sometime, like full on <laughs> mind bending horror kind of in the mouth of madness stuff. Anyways, I, I digress. <laughs> what's uh, what's keeping Drew up at night these days? Well, you mean like, uh, what am I stressing about or what am I like diving into? Either or. I mean, we're working on a project right now with Archetype Entertainment. Um, it's a lot of uh, ex-Bioware uh, people and a lot of really creative video game developers. We're owned by Wizards of the Coast and yeah. we're doing a new science fiction uh, IP, a new franchise. We're building from scratch. Nice. So I'm putting a lot of time and effort into that. And I'm simultaneously putting a lot of time and effort into my uh, Kickstarter uh, for my... Time Kings of Las Vegas mm -hmm. uh, book, which is a sort of a contemporary sci-fi action thriller set in Las Vegas. Um, the Kickstarter is actually officially over. It funded. I was really happy. But now all that extra work of like getting everything together and shipping out the orders. And, you know, there's a lot of extra work um, that's keeping me busy. Yeah. And uh, and then TV wise, I'm uh, I'm I'm enjoying the new uh, uh, Game of Thrones and the Rings of Power. Sorry, House of the Dragon. It's the Game of Thrones, but <laughs> House of the Dragon, Rings yep. of Power, I'm enjoying a lot. And uh, honestly, Rick and Morty just started. I've just rewatched the first episode a couple times. I really think, for me, Rick and Morty is just, uh, I, I'm sometimes embarrassed to say I'm part of the fan base because the fan base has gotten a bad rap because of some toxic people in it. Mm. But the actual product of Rick and Morty, I think, is just amazing. Yeah. Um, it does so much great stuff with sci fi and, and just like Futurama. Some of my favorite sci fi is animated. Jim Zub and Patrick Rothfuss did a Rick and Morty port into Dungeons and Dragons. So there's actually a Rick and Morty campaign book for Dungeons and Dragons. Really? It's fantastic. Wow, cool. Yeah, it's yeah. a good time. Um, well, the next question was, what are you currently working on that's exciting and you need to share with the world? But I mean, you've touched on what you're doing over at Archetype. Yeah. <laughs> Archetype. Um, yeah. And your Kickstarter, which was successful. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Can people people still get in on the pledge manager or pre-order? Or uh, I don't think they can get in on the pledge manager, but the book is going to be coming out pretty soon. And then you can start uh, pre-ordering it. Nice. Um, it's going to be available, you know, kind of the, the wide distribution. So anywhere on Amazon, um, you know, digital and uh, trade paperback. We're not doing hardcover. We're just doing trade paperback. Right on. Yeah. It's, it's a contemporary sci-fi story. Um if you're into uh, conspiracy theories and you're into, you know, uh, it's sort of got an X-Files vibe, mm -hmm. I guess, mm -hmm. um, set in Las Vegas, which is a place I just love. I go there five, six times a year. So I'm actually going in a couple of days. Oh, yeah. Um, so this was my attempt to see if I could figure out a way to write off some of these trips and, <laughs> you know, maybe make them an expense instead of a business expense or something. I need to start writing about Disneyland for the same reason. <laughs> Well, I guess, what does the future hold? If you were to grab a crystal ball, what does the future hold for Drew? 
Well, I mean, obviously this, this uh, project we're working on archetype still quite a ways away. We haven't officially announced anything more than, than what I've told you, which yep. is that it's a, an original sci-fi uh, property being developed. You know, we're being supported by Wizards of the Coast, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, Magic the Gathering, of yep. course, uh, yep. really great partners, really great to work with. Um, but that's, that's long-term mm-hmm. um, that's coming out. And then, you know, after this Kickstarter book, uh, I'm going to uh, start on my next book and I haven't decided yet. I'm kind of jumping between a, sort of a, my take on a vampire series mm-hmm. and a, a fantasy series, or well, not series. I'm, I'm going to try to do standalone books now. I found the series is just too emotionally draining. The Vegas book isn't the start of a series. It's not the first in a... No, unless, I mean, you know, if it, if it does really well and, and you know, somebody... A publisher or something comes and says, Hey, we want you to do another one. Yeah. I could be convinced. I mean, <laughs> I, I never, you know, the Darth Bane book was not originally meant to be a series. Um, oh. even though it kind of feels like it, but I think that's just the way I tell stories is even when they end, they're not really over. You like the dot, dot, dot at the end. Yeah. Just, you know, I always leave some doors open. If you look, there's always doors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tangent going back the, I don't know if you've seen the most recent, uh, season of Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I was really impressed with some of the revelations of how everything tied together back to like season one and they kind of put their mythology all together. Mm-hmm. I, I thought they did a really good job. I was very impressed with it. But I I, I think I, I, it could go either way. But if I had to bet, I would say they didn't have that all planned out. A lot of people started like, of course they did. I'm like, I don't think they did. I think <laughs> if you're a creative person, you can find ways to retrofit things and put them together. Yep. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the Darth Bane book that people are like, Oh, you, uh, wow. It's cool. How you planned that from the beginning. I'm like, I had no clue. <laughs> um, you know, characters coming back from the first book and, and stuff like this. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel like they've, uh, they've put, put the pieces together retroactively. But it, it's funny you say that because I had the same theory where I think it's almost an extra level of meta. It's like mm-hmm. a DM wrote this campaign mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the DM left lots of hooks in the beginning that they could come back mm-hmm. later to and grab onto and tie together. But that's what we do as DMs. Like that's just, yes. it was written by a DM as a campaign. Like, yeah. And that's, that's something. I mean, I used, when I did do role playing games, I was typically a, a DM or a game master. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like you say, there's you always leave the hooks there. I mean, some of them you don't use, but then exactly. when you do use them, people are like, "Oh, that's brilliant!" <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. I'm a genius. Yeah. Where can f- listeners find you online? Yeah, so um, there's two main places you can go. One is, uh, well, actually, it's three now. One is uh, my website, which is you know www.drewcarpition.com. Mm-hmm. So my name. Uh, if you're not sure how to spell my name, just type Drew Darth Bane there'll and you'll see it. There'll be links yeah. in the notes as yeah. well. Uh, and then, um, you know, through that website, you can also contact me through email uh, on the website there. Um, I have a Facebook page now, an author Facebook page. Nice. Um, that was sort of a newish thing. I, I started with the Kickstarter. You reach out to me through that. And then I'm on Twitter. Uh, Twitter's the social media I use mm-hmm. more than anything else. Um, I do try to respond to people there. Um, and that's just at Drew Carpition Twitter. Oh. Uh, I don't, uh, yeah, that's that's the best way to uh, find out what I'm working on, find my stuff. Um, on my website, there is sort of a, a sporadically updated news page um, where I kind of say what's coming up next, what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. 
I try to do it every month, but I'll be honest, it doesn't happen every month. It goes like, like all my stuff. I'll be really good for every two weeks. I get an update for two months and then you won't get one for six months. So, <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, and also don't forget to buy the new book. Yes. Yes. Time Kings of Las Vegas. Time Kings I mean, of Las Vegas. Soon. Yeah. Uh, should be available in probably October. You should be able to get it in, uh, all visual formats and trade paperback. Excellent. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Gerald. I really appreciate it. Great to be on. Well, the sun will be rising soon, so it's probably time for you to head home to the family. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to come back next week. Remember, there's always a spot for you by the fire at the corner of Story and Game.